Oh, that's always so weird to hear about yourself, especially when you know it's all lies. <laughs> Not really. It is. Well, I am so honored and privileged to be with you this weekend um, and to share a little bit of my heart and a little bit of my journey and story. And um, I want to add my welcome to you. Thank you for being here and thank you for those who are watching online and at the video venues. Um, this has already been, I've only been here one service, and I'm already so blessed by your church and who you are and how you're living out your story. Um, part of my story, uh, you know, I grew up in the church, but I had this encounter with Jesus in a movie theater in 1998 that kind of changed the trajectory of my life. And I wouldn't have known it at the time, and it was a very strange experience for me because of all things... I was in a movie theater, and I was watching the movie Armageddon. Do you remember that movie from 1998, Michael Bay film? And for any of you who are like cinephiles and love the art of movie, you know that pretty much everybody who loves film kind of hates Michael Bay um, because Michael Bay like is all about everything they say that's wrong with Hollywood <laughs> because it's like bad story, bad acting, bad writing, but pretty people and lots of explosions, you know, and that's like every Michael Bay movie, you know, Transformers and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and it's just, and pretty people, and, um, and like implausible scenarios, and so I'm in this basically just kind of like sugar Hollywood movie, right, like just that's bad for your teeth kind of thing, and I'm watching this movie, and it gets to the end, and if you haven't seen it, I'm, spoiler alert, I'm going to ruin the ending for you. Um, it came out in 98, there's no excuse, you should have seen it. Um, and so the movie, the way it goes, I mean, it's, pretty, it's a pretty realistic movie, if you remember. Um, there's a meteor coming to Earth, and it's going to destroy the Earth, and we have to send up some untrained... Um, drillers to put a nuclear bomb in the middle of the meteor to explode it so that it misses earth like you know the usual thursday fair and so i'm at this movie and it's like implausible and all of this stuff is going on and so they these guys but i'm in like i am into this movie i love this movie and i'm watching as they go up into outer space and bruce willis leads this ragtag group of nitwits who are dysfunctional but are going to save the world and rooting for them and they get up into outer space and of course everything goes wrong and I'm like what's going to happen and Ben Affleck is there and he's like you know hot-headed and you know causes problems and fights with Bruce Willis because he's dating his daughter <laughs> so I'm so I'm in like I'm into all of these people's lives everything that's going on and it comes down to the very end of course everything's gone wrong they're not able to put the the nuclear bomb low enough and then stuff goes wrong so they can't detonate it remotely so somebody has to stay behind to detonate the nuclear bomb which means they're going to die on the rock and so they draw straws and Ben Affleck's character gets A.J. Frost he gets the last shortest straw and so he and Bruce Willis go down this is a very emotional moment where Ben Affleck is going to sacrifice his life for the sake of the world and Bruce Willis like gets down there with him and then like rips part of his suit so that he can't breathe and pushes him back in the spaceship and then he takes his place on the rock and Ben Affleck's like no and I'm like no <laughs> and like I'm bawling by myself in a movie theater at a Michael Bay film and very 
and have to eat my shame. And like, there was just like all of this stuff going on and I'm going, oh no, he's gonna. And then, you know, they do like the hands on the glass thing in this moment. And then Bruce Willis stays on the rock and the spaceship goes away and Bruce Willis ends up dying and the meteor explodes and goes two different ways and misses the earth by seconds. And the whole world rejoices. But the whole world doesn't know that Bruce Willis just gave his life so that the world could live. And I'm sitting there in this movie theater and I'm just like this, I love this movie. And I'm like bawling my eyes out and I'm ashamed, but I don't even care. And I'm just, all these things are going on in my mind. And then all of a sudden, it hits me. This is the Christ story. A man sacrifices his own life so that the earth can live, and at the time, very few people even knew what was going on. The earth went on as it did the day before, but Bruce Willis died so that humanity could live. And all of a sudden, it hit me. This is the Christ story. And I'm sitting there, and this is no joke, I'm sitting there in this theater listening to Aerosmith sing the final song you know, of the movie, and I'm still bawling my eyes out and going, how did this hit me so hard? And why can't the church tell the story this way? Because we are people of an amazing story. The greatest story ever told. The creator of the universe has decided that he loves us and wants to be in relationship with us enough that he's willing to send his only son to die so that we can be in relationship with him. Now that's a story. A story that we get to walk in every single day. And then what we also get to do is this is a story about grace. It's a story about redemption. It's a story about hope. It's a story about love. It's a story about truth. This is our story. We get to walk in this story every single day. And yet where I was going to church at the time, I felt like, yeah, this was good stuff. And it was, you know, things were going on at church that were good, but they didn't capture my heart the way that this stupid Michael Bay film did. Why can't we be people who tell a story that is the greatest story ever in a way that profoundly impacts people, that causes them to think. One scholar says that movies' job is to make you feel so much that you have to think. It's about bringing up the emotion and connecting with the emotion in you enough that forces you, you feel so much, you can't leave it alone. You have to think. So I began storing, studying story. I began studying the, the art of film and, and the art of storytelling. And I began looking for those moments that I could point to God speaking into culture through film, through media. And I began saying, oh, there's grace. And I began trying to point people towards grace. Oh, there's hope. And I began trying to point people towards hope. There's justice. Point people towards justice. And I began to study it, and I began to be a part of trying to create those kind of stories that communicated the story of God to a people who I believe desperately needs it. Because we all know, we're all aware that media is like very pervasive in our culture, right? Like there's nobody arguing the power that media has over us, the power that, me that celebrity has. 
And what I'm here to talk about today is not a cautionary tale about media. It is not me saying culture is bad, church is good, so we need to be make better, we need to make good Christian culture to combat culture over here. What I'm trying to say is how do we as Christians live in a world where media film is pervasive? It is the primary way in many ways that people are finding how to live their story out. And how do we, with the people who have the greatest story that needs to be told, enter into that and engage? How do we become a part of that? Or do we stay away? How do we engage? So I just want to start out by kind of setting the tone of understanding where we're at. Pull up the first slide for me. So here's just a few Nielsen stats from a couple years ago. Nielsen are the people who like put the Nielsen box, you know, and so they study people's TV watching habits. According to them of a 2012 survey, um, the average Netflix user watches 3.4 movies a week. 3.4 movies a week. That's a lot of hours given towards just movies. That's not TV shows, which how many of you binge watch? I do. <laughs> Get in some of those shows and binge watch some of those shows. There's just movies. And then they also found that the average American over the age of two watches more than 34 hours of live TV a week. That doesn't include recorded TV, which adds another about six hours. So we have about 40 hours a week that the average American watches television. Nearly 20% of smartphone users searched ads or coupons while watching TV. Now, I add that in there as a statistic because what advertisers are finding is that we now live what are called second screen lives. We're watching something here, but we have our phone with us. We're checking email. We're looking at iPods, we, uh, iPads. We have a computer. And when something comes on, it actually will influence the way that we are purchasing habits. They're finding that, that while we're watching stuff, it's changing what we buy online. Um, Amazon has now created that, you know, Amazon Prime, which is a streaming service. The entire reason for that is so that people can purchase more things, right? This is very pervasive. It's impacting our lives. Next slide. How many of you know who this character is? Okay, actually, probably a better question. How many of you do not know who this character is? Okay, for those of you at home, there's like three or four people in here who don't. I'm going to ask everybody who does know on the count of three to say who this character is. Ready? One, two, three. Dory. Dory, right, from Finding Nemo, right? Well, an interesting statistic is that estimates say that 63% of Americans watched Finding Nemo in its first year. With the first year it was out, 63% of America watched Finding Nemo. That is amazing to me. Can you think about other things that 63% of Americans would do? What it did, though, it, was, it allowed us to enter into the story of Finding Nemo in a really interesting way. It began impacting the way people purchase things. Um, Australian tourism went up. Uh, they could not keep clownfish in the store. Actually, like the pet stores could not keep enough clownfish there. Um, and... Australia said that they were actually overwhelmed with tourism based on, and they actually developed advertising campaigns for China and the U.S. based on Finding Nemo, and it increased their, um, their tourism. Um, what's interesting to me is that, so I, I say that the average American watches 3.4 movies or 40 hours of television, essentially, and 63% of Americans watched Finding Nemo in its first year 
which obviously that has skyrocketed since over the years with DVD and streaming and all of that. But each film or television or advertisement that we see has an argument. It is making an argument, whether we recognize it or not. And for me, one of the most powerful arguments made in movies was, came in this movie. Let me tell you the story about Finding Nemo, if you don't remember it or if you haven't seen it. It is about a son who gets frustrated with his father and in a moment of anger moves away out of disobedience, away from his dad. His disobedience ends up getting him in trouble and he goes to a faraway land where he lives with other people. His father doesn't disown him, but then works to go find his son in another land. And once his son hears that his father will still accept him, escapes from that foreign land, and then there is a moment of reunion where they both come running at each other and embrace in joy and celebration. What other story does that sound like? The prodigal son. Here was a film that 63% of Americans watched that essentially was an exegetical tool for Luke, what is it, 14? For the prodigal son, for the lost coin, for the lost sheep. And there are profound things that are happening and our culture is listening to this argument about a father who is not willing to disown his son because of disobedience. That is crazy to me. It's a moment that I can say, there's a story of grace. There's a story of hope. There's a story of redemption. Maybe we should wake up to it. Next slide. A few Barna statistics. Um, the 30% of Americans over 18 saw uh, Iron Man 3 last year. Also, 30% of adults over 18 watch Big Bang Theory. That's crazy to me. One in three. There is a collective voice, a collective group, community that is hearing this story week in, week out. What argument is it making? What kind of things is America learning from these stories? They're impacting the lives. Um, and this is not just like a non-Christian phenomenon. Evangelicals, actually, their view, movie viewing habits are on par with or slightly above the national average of non-Christians. Um, millennials, which is the, the youngest generation of adults right now, the new wave of adults that are coming up, they're, they're actually watch more movies than the older generation. So movies are having more influence on them um, than older generations. And here's just some interesting things kind of as I'm walking through like story and what kind of story our culture is hearing right now. The number one, number three, and number six movies of 2013 all had female leads. Number one movie, Hunger Games. Number three, Frozen. Number six, Gravity. What stories are those telling our culture? The U.S. Archery Association has said, said that after Hunger Games came out, they had an uptick in their training camps of 75%. Their attendance went up 75% because of Hunger Games. It is influencing our culture. It is speaking. It is saying something. Um, and, I, and just to kind of throw this one in there, the average American watches 45 movies a year. Now, it's not just that we are seeing, but they're impacting us. Next slide. 11% of Americans said that a movie in the past two years made them think seriously about religion or spirituality. 
One in 10, over one in 10 Americans said seriously. So if you're filling out a survey and it's like one, movies didn't impact me at all. Five, it seriously impacted me. One, over one in 10 Americans said five on the survey, right? They said movies are now influencing, maybe even there are some studies that show it used to be that primary, the primary place where people sought, got their spiritual um, fulfillment was from the church and the arts was below it. That gap is closing and they're estimating maybe in the next 10 years that arts will pass the church in influence. Um, now, and, and evangelicals, it's even more, and Protestants is even more. Practicing Protestants is even more. So I put that out there, not as, again, a cautionary tale to say, oh, there's big bad media is killing the church or anything like that. Or man, we watch too much television or too many movies. I'm just setting the tone to say, this is the culture that we live in. We live in a culture that responds to film, that responds to television, that people are actively involved in. And if, which I would argue, that every film and every television is making an argument, we need to be aware of what that is. And we also, I believe, need to be a part of making an argument ourselves. So what does that look like? How has that looked like? How has the church approached this in the past and how are we going to move forward in the future? Well, what I want to do is I just kind of want to walk over a little bit how historically how the church has approached the arts, all arts in general. Next slide. So there's this guy named Richard Niebuhr who wrote a book called Christ and Culture, which basically like outlines how the church has approached the arts. And this is kind of the standard academic, like this is what people refer to a lot. The first, there are five different ways that the church has approached culture. The first one is avoidance. This is the kind of thing where the church says, culture is bad, Jesus is good, so we're going to stay separate from those two things. We're going to be separate from culture. Because culture is bad, I'm going to ignore it, I'm not going to be a part of it. Um, and maybe even creating a counterculture to where there is Christian music, and I only listen to Christian music, I only watch Christian movies, and I don't see this over here. Um, this goes back all the way, like, you know, back into the times of Christ, but even in the, in the 700s, there was a thing called the iconoclast controversy, where the church in Western Europe destroyed all the art in the church, like even Christian art, because the Christian art was seen as, um, as idols, and people were praying to the art itself versus praying to God, and so they destroyed all the art. The church said art is bad because it's idolatrous, and so we're going to stay away from it. So that's happened a long time ago, but it happens a lot now. And this is what the church, many ways, gets a bad rap, like kind of by culture of saying, oh, church just wants to stay away, and everything's bad, and boycott, and blah, blah, blah. So this is one way of approaching it, is avoidance. I'm not going to engage in culture at all. Next slide. The next one is called Christ and Culture and Paradox. This is where you understand that you're in the world and culture exists and there's stuff that happens, but I'm not fully sure how to engage it. I'm not fully sure how to enter into that. So I recognize there might be some good stuff. There might be some bad stuff. Christ is in it all, but I don't know how it all kind of comes together. So I might watch TV and I'm not sure if I should watch TV or I might listen to this music and I'm not sure I should listen to this music, but Christ's grace is bigger than that. So I'm going to just kind of enter into this and I'm going to I'm not going to avoid, I'm not going to dive in deep, but I'm just going to kind of enter in and allow these two things to stay, my faith and my culture to stay in conflict. Next slide. 
Christ transforms culture. This is where entering into culture in order to redeem culture, change culture from the inside. Christian artists, a lot of Christian movies, the passion. It's the idea of using culture and embracing culture, but transforming it. Um, that you go in, artists enter in as salt and light into the world in order to change that culture. Next slide. Christ of culture. This is where basically the opposite of the avoidance. The avoidance is what I would call cultural anorexia, and this would be cultural gluttony. It's just that essentially God created beauty, so everything that is in culture is beautiful, and so if it's beautiful, then I engage in it, and God can redeem it later. But I'm just going to engage like kind of uncritically, and I'm going to be a cultural glutton because God's over it all anyway. So that's kind of the opposite of the avoidance. Then lastly, Christ above culture. This is called the divine encounter. Recognizing that there is, there is stuff in the world that maybe not is of God, but God can step into it and be, redeem it and have a divine encounter with it. Much like with I talked about with Michael Bay. If you can have a divine encounter with Michael Bay, then you can probably have a divine encounter with anything. But it's about recognizing where those moments that God is stepping in and being a part of culture. So that's kind of just like the historical overview of where the church has been. Avoidance, um, paradox, so that it's, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to be, I don't know how to approach it. Um, I'm going to um, transform culture. I'm going to change it by being a champion of the arts. Um, I'm going to be a glutton, or I'm going to look for divine divine um, encounter in it all. Now, when I first began my journey, so I began that in, in that, uh, I had that experience in 1998, and I began kind of trying to see, okay, how can I engage culture, and how can I be a part of these stories, and how can I be a part of transforming? That's where I first started, is I'm going to transform culture. I'm going to be a Christian actor, and I'm going to be famous, and I'm going to give glory to God when I win my Oscar. And I'm going to transform culture that way. That was kind of my thing. So I moved to L.A., and I um, got an agent and, um, and kind of began the process. And I had been in a few different shows, um, a, a few sitcoms, a few films here and there, nothing big, hadn't really, uh, you know, I'd got bit parts, but was mainly kind of learning the process. And I decided I'd be salt and light in those situations and all of these things. Well, one day, kind of my what I thought was my bigger break came. And I got an audition notice for um, a, music, a rap music video. And I know. <laughs> I belong in rap music. <laughs> I'm not even sure if you can call it rap music. Is it rap music? What are the kids calling it? I don't know. But anyway, so I got an audition notice for rap music video. And the, the audition said... Um, we're looking for a nerdy, fat, white guy who can dance. And you don't know me very well, but if my picture was in the encyclopedia, that's what it would say underneath. Nerdy, fat, white guy who can dance. And so I said, this is me. So I go down to the audition, and when I'm there, I end up... Um, there's a bunch of other fat, nerdy white guys who thought they could dance. They could not. And so I go in, and I'm sitting there, and... Uh, and they bring me into this room, and there's a Dance Dance Revolution mat on the floor. 
and so I'm supposed to perform Dance Dance Revolution. So they put the camera on me and they have me introduce myself and say, I'm JJ and I'm here for the part of fat, nerdy, white guy who can dance. <laughs> and so I start, they turn the music on and I start dancing and revolutioning like nobody's business, you know, and I'm hipping and hopping and all that stuff. And I'm kind of, you know, the, the camera's mainly on my face. So I'm kind of like really trying to just be funny and everything. And they're laughing and they, they're enjoying the whole thing. And um, so they make me do it and then they um, make me do it again. And then they end up waving over this character, this person, kind of this dark figure uh, who is outside into the room. And the person has a hat on and a, um, a football jersey and sweatpants. And the director, when the person walks in the room, the director says, oh, you guys are the same height. This could work. And I turn, and it's Missy Elliott. Missy Misdemeanor Elliott. I don't know if you know her, but she was a very famous rapper. And Missy Elliott is there with me, and she goes, okay, let's see what you got. And so she turns the Dance Dance Revolution up to the professional level and, and is like, go for it. And so they turn the camera again, and I just start dancing. I'm trying to keep everything up. I'm like sweating and everything. And she starts laughing. She's like, all right, get it, get it, which sweetest words I've ever heard. And... <laughs> And she's loving it, and they're loving it, and they're waving over the other dancers and all this stuff. And so I was like, I got this. And a couple days later, they called, and I got the part. And so I was so excited. It was kind of my first featured role, big break. It was for Missy Elliott's video. Um, it was the first 3D music video that was ever made, and it was for Step Up to the Streets. And so I was going to be like on movie and, and TV. They were doing a big premiere on TRL, on MTV, and all this stuff. And I told all of my family and my friends. I had a blog at that time who didn't. And I'm like blogging about it, and I'm telling everybody. And, and my mom immediately started telling everybody that I was in a Melissa Etheridge video. And... <laughs> very different. And, and so I'm just like, but I'm so excited. And so I'm just like, they called me and they got my measurements and all this stuff. So a couple days later, I show up on set. And when I show up on set, I walk in and I'm kind of like, I'm excited. I've got a little bounce in my step, you know, and I'm like, I'm a nerdy fat guy who can dance. And I get up there and I walk up to the security guard and I say, hi, my name is JJ. I'm here for the Missy Elliott video. Um, and, and he goes, oh, Fat Michael Jackson. I said, no, I'm the Dance Dance Revolution guy. He's like, yeah, as Fat Michael Jackson. Did somebody supposed to call you and tell you to learn how to moonwalk? Did they not do that? And I said, no, no, that did not happen. And I'm like, oh, you're kidding, you're kidding. <laughs> yeah, good one. No, okay, I'm here for as Dance Dance Revolution. He's like, no, I'm not kidding. You're supposed to be Fat Michael Jackson. So he gets on the radio, and he's like, Fat Michael Jackson is here, but he doesn't know he's Fat Michael Jackson. Is it, was it Fat Michael Jackson? And they're like, yeah, that's Fat Michael Jackson. So the rest of the day, everybody just called me Fat Michael Jackson. There was no, I had no name other than Fat Michael Jackson. And it turned out that I had, there was a skinny Michael Jackson and a Fat Michael Jackson. And so I'm up in my, like, waiting room, dressing room area, and I'm freaking out because... Like, I don't know how to do the moonwalk, and I don't know how to do Michael Jackson moves. I'm like, they're going to fire me, and I start stressing out. And then the wardrobe guy comes in, and the wardrobe guy comes in, and he ends up handing me these pants, which were black pants, high water, with silver socks and black shoes, very Michael Jackson, and a white shirt. And he hands me the white shirt, and it is a small. Don't laugh too hard. 
And I said, this isn't going to fit me, clearly. And he said, it's not supposed to. I said, that's part of the thing, is your belly is supposed to hang out. In fact, we're not even going to show your face. We're just going to show your belly. They just want to see your belly jiggle around. And every piece of joy and pride and excitement that I had, and I was thinking through every single person that I had told about this, I was done. I was just like, I can't believe this. I am not part of the joke that gets people laughing. I'm the joke. They're going to laugh at me. And so I sat there for a few, for about an hour, actually, maybe a little bit longer in that room. And I can tell you that I went through all five phases of approach to culture. I was like, this is horrible. This is fat shaming. We should not be doing this. All this like thing about, I'm going to avoid this media. MTV is horrible anyway. I shouldn't have even been a part of it. Avoidance. Then I went to, you know what? I'm just going to own it, whatever. I, you know, this is, I'm on a rap video. They're going to make me famous either way. I don't care. You know, the kind of the cultural gluttony. Then I was like, what do I do? How do I approach this? What am I supposed to do? And this is also part of it as a Christian. What am I supposed to do as a Christian where they're making fun of me being fat and that's going to be on television? What am I supposed to do with that? I don't know. Do I just, and so I just kind of stayed. Am I supposed to, and I went through this, maybe this is God telling me that I'm going to witness to Missy Elliott and I'm going to baptize her. Like maybe I'm transforming like all of this stuff. Like I'm, they can make fun of my fat, but I'm going to win Missy for the Lord. And so it became like this, maybe that's why God has me here. And ultimately, it actually came to a moment of divine encounter where all of a sudden I began to say, you know what, this is not about what's happening here. This is about how I respond because they're watching me. They're watching how I'm going to respond. And so I am going to, I'm already in this position and I am going to be the best fat Michael Jackson this world has ever seen. So I looked at that man in the mirror said, it's time to make a change. <laughs> this is it. I can be the king of pop tarts. <laughs> I could go all night. And I said, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm going to stand and I'm going to be kind to everybody while I'm here. My identity does not rest in the fact that I am overweight. It does not rest in the fact that I am a the butt of a joke. I am a child of the king. My identity comes from there, and I am going to be the best fat Michael Jackson this world has ever seen. And I entered into a divine encounter with God in the midst of this very culturally weird moment. And that's how, like, we as a church go through all of that, right? How do we approach this stuff? What is our responsibility as Christians? And I came to a point of divine encounter. And you're going to see my divine encounter results because I brought a clip and I brought the clip of it and you'll see skinny Michael Jackson. Oh, 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 wait, wait, no. Here's so what, let me tell you what happened. I forgot the best part. So I, I just embrace that I'm going to be fat Michael Jackson. So I go downstairs and Missy has to approve the, the wardrobe and how I look and everything. We're on a first name basis now. And so Miss, misdemeanor. Um, is down there and she looks at me and I just, I, I've walked down and I've like, I've got it all going on and I'm standing there and she like looks at me and she's like, oh, that's perfect. And I start dancing and I'm grooving and I'm moving and she's like, that's perfect. That's hilarious. And then she goes, but he's really funny. His face is really funny. 
which are the sweetest words I'd ever heard. <laughs> his face is really funny. I want to show his whole face. I want to show his whole body. And she said, and that shirt, now that, the, that's not the joke anymore. He's funny. Give him a bigger, a bigger shirt. So she ends up giving me a medium, so it was still tight, <laughs> but, a li- but at least it wasn't all hanging out, right? And so I end up then for the next like two hours dancing next to Missy Elliott, and I'm in the video for about five seconds, and you'll be able to see, because I'm showing you it, and nobody else really knows out there that there was a skinny Michael Jackson and a fat Michael Jackson, but you're going to see it because the skinny Michael Jackson comes right on before me, and they show his feet, and then they show me. So show that clip. (laughs) Oh, no, you do not have to clap for that. (laughs) That was was my divine encounter. So that has happened. That happened for me. And again, it was another one of those moments where I was like, okay, so not only how do I encounter God in the culture like through film, but how do I be a part of bringing joy, bringing truth to the people I'm working with as an artist, and then also on the screen? And I began to just say, so what now? Okay, so here's how the church has approached this in the past. Here's what the, all the feelings that I went through in the Missy Elliott situation. Avoidance, gluttony, um, questions, transformation, divine encounter. But how do we, what do we do? And the reality is all of those at different times as we engage culture are appropriate. There are appropriate times to avoid things that are art. There's appropriate it's not all about defining, finding a divine encounter, for instance, and excuse this kind of going this far. But it's not like I would, I would say to you, oh, watch pornography and look for the divine moments. No, that's an avoidance issue, in case you're unclear about where I'm headed with some of this stuff. <laughs> there are times for sometimes there's avoidance, there's a sometimes to engage, but there's, there's always time to be critical thinkers and engage what's going on in culture because this is impacting. And what we need to be doing as Christians is looking for those divine encounter moments and also creating them. So here's a couple questions. Next slide. Is it okay to be critical? As I'm saying that culture is like there's all these things, these divine moments and all this stuff, is it okay to be critical of art and culture? If you're not going to be an avoidance person, if you're going to engage, is it okay to be critical? And what I mean by that is not critical in the sense of offering criticism to all art, but being critical thinkers, being critics who engage a piece of art for what it is. A lot of times, historically, Christians have said, if it is Christian, it is good. If it is non-Christian, it is bad. There is a secular and there is a sacred, and ne'er the two shall meet. Our job as people who live in a world that is dominated by media is to be able to be critical thinkers who can look in and maybe blur that line a little bit between the sacred and secular and say God might be in it, but we have to be people who are critically thinking of all of it because we are theologians. We are theologians. 
And Karl Barth says that the best theologians are the kind who have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. They're people who engage culture and knows what's going on around them, but are founded in the word. And we need to be people who engage culture and are critical thinkers. You should be a critical thinker of me. Just because I'm up on the stage. See, when I said everything has an argument, this room, do you know that this room has an argument? The way this room is set up argues that I'm the authority and you're supposed to listen to me. The lights are shining upon me, showing that I am angelic. <laughs> this room makes an argument that I have authority over you because I'm smarter, I'm taller up here, not anywhere else in the world. And I've got bright lights on me. But you should be critical thinkers of me. And my hope would be that maybe something in this you would agree with and may challenge you, but there may be something that you say, I don't actually agree with the argument he's making. And that that disagreement actually challenges you to be a deeper thinker. That you think more critically because now you understand what you think more deeply. Because you disagree with what I said. I'm really okay with that. We need to be critical thinkers when we engage culture. Next slide. Because we already are doing it. We are already people who already have thoughts about God. And where theology happens in our lives is where our cultural experiences, our personal experiences, overlap with our tradition and our biblical understanding. We use those three to form our theology. Theology is not just created in a vacuum. It's created out of our experience, out of scripture, and out of our church tradition. And we need to understand that that's how it happens and be critical thinkers and engage culture. Engage culture and say, that's actually, I don't agree with that based on this with scripture. Our church tradition actually tells me that this is not appropriate, or maybe it is. And I can help people engage in that and teach them about God because of my experience, the biblical understanding, and my church tradition. Next slide. Moltmann, a theologian, says this. It says, Christian theology does not belong solely in the circle of people who are insiders. You are Christian theologians. And it is time, if the church has not already begun this, which I actually believe it has, is to be critical thinkers of culture and theology. Thinking about what, what, arguments are, what argument is Big Bang Theory making and do I agree with it or not? What does Big Bang say about women? What does Big Bang say about the outsiders in culture? What does Big Bang say about dating habits and is it just funny or is it actually making an argument and do I agree or disagree with that it is time that we become people who are critical thinkers next slide is it okay to engage culture I would argue yes I would argue yes for a couple different reasons one we need to be creators of culture we need to be people who are creating stories I would beg any artist not just beg, challenge any artist that is in this room or watching online, musician, poet, to stand up and begin pointing people towards the story of God. And I don't mean that it has to, everybody has to make like the passion movie or um, a Christ, just a Christian story movie. But what about the people who made Wally? -E? Do you think that, you know, a lot of people think that that's an environmentalist story. It's a story about new creation. 
Eve and Wally, the first two who then bring the plant and restart life. It's about creation. In fact, some of the creators have actually said, this is not a story about environmentalism, it's a story about creation. There's a reason her name is Eve. What if we were creating things like that that were pointing people back towards creation, towards beauty, towards love, towards hope? We can be creators of culture and engaging in that way. But it also offers us an opportunity to be heard. When you, when you remove yourself from, cult from culture, you remove yourself from the opportunity to speak into it. Paul is one of my greatest examples of this. In Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16, Paul is in Athens. And it says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's walking around, and he's seeing all of these temples in Athens and idols that are everywhere. And it actually disturbed him. It made him upset. And he ends up, he ends up like talking in the synagogues and walking around. And some people, some poets, some um, philosophers invite him to be a part of their group that met on this hill that was up above Athens. It's called Mars Hill, where all of the people of the day who were like philosophers and artists and poets would gather. And Paul here had the opportunity to say, you're wrong, you're stupid, let me tell you the way. He doesn't say that. Paul stood then up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. So he didn't say you stupid people who are worshiping all these idols, he actually enters into the conversation because he knew the culture. And he's like, you are an incredibly religious people. And you're almost getting it. There's this idol right over here, this beautiful statue to this unknown God. Can I tell you who he is? Some of you worship him already, but let me tell you something. And he goes, says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything. He's, he's preaching. I mean, he is preaching. He's not, he's not toning it down. He's telling them about who God is. And he goes on and continues to explain, but then this is like the coolest part for me. In verse 27, he said this. He's quoting somebody. If you look at the scripture, Acts 17, verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He's quoting their own poets. The poem that he is quoting is actually a poem about Zeus. It's not a Christian poem. It is not a Jewish poem. It is a poem about Zeus. And the poem says that in Zeus, we live and move and have our being. And we are Zeus's offspring. It was a very well-known poem. And he's quoting that, but he points at that divine encounter moment to bring him back to the unknown God, which is the God he's telling them about. We have the ability as Christians, we should not be afraid of the stories of culture, of things that are going on, of movies. 
we need to engage and be people who point out and say, there's a story of hope. There's a story of justice. There's a story of grace. Can I tell you about this little fish who disobeyed his dad? Can we walk through that a little bit? And then can I tell you about a God who loves you so much that he would be willing to go through sharks and poisonous jellyfish to find you? And point out, point people towards the story of God. Next slide. Next slide. C.S. Lewis said this. When I began Christianity, when I began, Christianity came before the great mass of my unbelieving fellow countrymen, either in the highly emotional form offered by revivalists or in the unintelligible language of highly cultured clergymen. Most men were reached by neither. Next slide. My task was therefore simply that of a translator, one turning Christian doctrine or what he believed to be such into the vernacular, into language that unscholarly people would attend to and could understand. One thing at least is sure. If the real theologians had tackled this laborious work of translation about a hundred years ago, when they began to lose touch with the people for whom Christ died, there would have been no place for me. He wrote this in the Christian Century, the magazine. Lewis is saying, we need to be interpreters of the, for the culture of the vernacular of the story of Christ. We need to put it in the common language to tell the story in a way that engages people. They are finding truth and spiritual meaning in film. How can we engage in that? Because we tell the greatest story ever told. Not just tell it, we walk it. We walk it every single day. And that's who we need to be. Finally, so we need to be critics. We need to be engagers of cultures. And then finally, can we actually learn from culture? If you establish that you can be critical thinker. And if you establish that there is reason to engage to potentially find God in moments, there also may be moments that we could learn from culture. I often tend to think that we as Christians hold the market on, on truth and beauty. But that's not always true. Throughout history, God has used people outside of his chosen people in order to come back and speak to his chosen people. Pull up this slide. Melchizedek. He's mentioned multiple times in scripture. In fact, in Hebrews, he's talked about the high priest and Jesus is like Melchizedek. He is used to teach lessons in Hebrews and in Genesis. And he is, he is exalted, right? He's not Israelite. He is not part of God's chosen people. He was outside of that and yet God used him and compared Jesus to him. In Proverbs 30, there, is a, there are some wisdom sayings by a man named Aber. This man, is that is not an Israelite name. That is not a Jewish name. He comes from outside of God's chosen people, and yet his sayings are a part of the canon of Scripture. Proverbs 31, King Lemuel says there are sayings from his mother. King Lemuel was not a Jew, uh, king of Judah or Israel, and yet there is sayings, wisdom sayings in there, in the Jewish Bible, in our Bible, that are not Christian or Jewish. They come from outside of that context. Proverbs twenty two seventeen. there begins, if you look in the scripture, it says usually something like wisdom sayings or sayings of wisdom. What they found in 1910, a British museum actually translated a book from Egypt that was called the sayings of, uh, I'm horrible with names, Amenape. And this book of sayings was translated and they have found that it actually matches this book in Proverbs. 
And there's even in verse 20 in, in, the, in the chapter there, it says there are 30 sayings. Well, there are 30 chapters in this book that were translated. So an Egyptian author who had no connection with God, the wisdom sayings are actually in our canon. In Habakkuk, God used the Chaldeans to bring glory to himself when the Israelites would not. The Magi, the three wise men in the New Testament, are people who come and proclaim the, the birth of the king and then also are used in the story to protect Jesus from being attacked by Herod. There are multiple times in scripture and out where God uses people outside of what we think in this era, this is how we're supposed to understand God in truth. And God says, open up just a little bit as a critical thinker, but learn because maybe God is going to surprise you in how he shows himself to you. So that's my challenge and my call to you, to be people who engage culture, not mindlessly, but are critical thinkers who are creating culture, who are telling the story of God, because if anything, all of this is about the story of Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about, is understanding who Jesus is and sharing that with the world. And we need to be people who do that well. Um, last slide here, and I'm, I'm out of time, so I'm just going to go this quick, is that if this is something that has, like, I've hit this really quickly and is something that you're interested in, I have some resources up here. Uh, maybe just take a picture with your phone of some, of some books um, that may be good. Robert Johnston specifically writes about film, real spirituality, and finding God in the movies covers a lot of this. Richard Niebuhr is the stuff I talked about with the Christ and culture. Um, C.S. Lewis, he wrote, a, there's a collection of his essays called God in the Dock. And the essay that I think deals with this a lot is called Myth Became Fact. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together is actually not about the arts at all, but it's about how to live in community and foundation, putting your foundation in Christ before you do anything else. And anything by Frederick Buechner. So... You feel free to look that up, um, find some more, go deeper, be critical thinkers, ignore everything I said. And, um, but my prayer is that, that we are a people who are living and breathing the story of God. And however we can do that and sharing that story with others to bring glory to him and bring others into relationship with him. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend.